Hello, friends. Do you like Elixir Talk? Are you adopting Elixir at your company? Unwise architectural decisions can sow confusion among your team and add permanent technical debt to an application. Even experienced engineers take time to learn Erlang and Elixir concepts and to understand the tools available to them in the ecosystem. Avoid costly ramp-up time and painful design decisions by hiring us, your Elixir Talk co-hosts Chris and Desmond, for a personalized consultation. We can train your team and help you design a robust system that leverages all of Elixir's strengths. Learn from our years of experience and have fun doing it. For more information, email us at info at elixirtalk.com. That's info at elixirtalk.com. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem and Star Trek. I'm your host, Desmond Bowie, and I'm joined uh, by my co-host, Chris Bell. That really threw me off. <laughs> I thought about it at the last second. I thought I'd just drop it in there and I, I, kick things off on a fun note. I liked it. I liked it a lot. How's it going, Desmond? Thank you. Um, well, it's going pretty well. It's funny, because you always ask me that question, and yet each time I feel like it blindsides me. <laughs> just not prepared. Not prepared to talk about how you feel. Well... This isn't the right podcast for that. This is, <laughs> <true. a> yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast about Elixir, but thanks for asking. I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, I've got, I just bought a new motorcycle, um, although I bought it online, which is sort of funny. Uh, and I, I know the bike, so I'm not worried about that. But it's weird to buy a thing like this and then sort of sit on it for two weeks while it gets shipped out. Is it- as I say that, I mean, we buy things online all the time, and then I guess we wait for it. But I'm like... I don't know. I'm kind of ready for this thing to get here. Are they shipping it to your house? Yep. Oh, that's weird. Why is it weird? I don't know. I just can't imagine like a purchase like that coming to your house, you know? Where, where would it go, man? A P.O. box? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go down the post office and you're like, oh, I'm here to pick up my motorbike. <laughs> it's like some Harry Potter shit right there yeah. where it's this tiny little thing in the box and it's like... Or it's more like a... And this is Spinal Tap. I, do you, know, you know, with Stonehenge. I've never seen that. Don't don't kill me right now. I just oh I, really? Yeah. Every, I I feel like it comes up like every month, and I'm like I I just don't know the reference. You know. I think you'd like it. It it's funny because it it sort of spawned a genre of these like mockumentaries. Um, I mean, I guess it was that group that did a lot of them, but they had this one movie that came out in the early '80s, and then nothing happened for like 12 years, and then they started making more of them. Nice. Uh, maybe I'll so, check it out. So, uh, talking of mockumentaries, what are we talking about today? Uh, let's see. I think um, you were curious. You wanted to talk about, uh, you've been doing a lot of JavaScript, and you wanted to discuss a little bit about um, using JavaScript in the Elixir and Phoenix ecosystem. That is right. I did want to talk about that. Unfortunately, unfortunately for our listeners, I have been doing a lot of JavaScript over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> so, that's kind of fresh on, on the top of my mind. Um, and, yeah, I was thinking that you know, there's still a bit of ambiguity about how should we structure things? How should we be uh, like weaving JavaScript into our applications? And you know what, Phoenix is better than just being an API server as well. You can do some great stuff on the front end with it. Um, Obviously it doesn't have an asset pipeline because I think they were kind of smart and they realized that, you know, the JavaScript ecosystem exists and we should just plug into that. 
And I think that Phoenix is a great foundation for you to, to be able to like plug in some of that more like client side heavy JavaScript into your applications as well. So um, Desmond, how have you been doing this recently? What, working with JavaScript? Yeah, if you've been doing it at all. Uh, I don't do it that much. Actually, my, my new project is more, uh, more backend infrastructure. Um, when I do work with JavaScript, I just go with brunch, the brunch pipeline. Um, I'm not like that strong with my JS, and it seems like every time I come back to it, there's some new tool for uh, minifying it, compressing it, processing it, and I keep getting my grunt files mixed up with my gulp files, and then they're like, no, no, brunch is the thing now. So um, I generally mess with it until it works. Right. But, I mean, where do you stand on the, like, client application versus server application, and when you think about using, like, more JavaScript in a project? Oh, I see. Um, I generally start off with... Um, server-side rendered everything. Mm -hmm. And I will throw in jQuery uh, to do small stuff. Right. I don't worry about, like, I should try to do this with vanilla JavaScript, try to get element by ID, or do anything like that, because I think in 2018, it's fine to throw a couple hundred K of JS down the wire on a first request, I think. Um, I mean, unless your customers are specifically in areas with low bandwidth, with poor latency, and that is a big concern, okay, that's fine. Uh, I think as a general case, whatever, deal with it. I'm more concerned about my convenience here. Dude, a couple uh, of hundred K, have you been using React? That's like one meg of JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just talking about jQuery, but suddenly IR has turned on jQuery already and, and not pulling it in unless you need it. Yeah. I uh, so I, I still think there's an interesting kind of there's an interesting space to be played out in the server side rendered versus client side rendered like kind of applications right and inherently because of the fact that we're looking at Phoenix and we're talking about Elixir on this podcast we're kind of already on the server side of things of course um, but you know what like if uh, I I often think that like there are definitely times where you want to say this has got tons of interactivity and I need to reuse all these components and this is going to be a pain to do in like server-side rendered HTML. So in those cases, like leaning on something like a React or a Vue.js or some kind of like framework in JavaScript kind of makes sense, right? But then I think so. Yeah, and then it's like, well, how does that plug back into what you're doing and like... I, I don't know. I've, I've been in these like applications where you end up rendering out a load of JSON into a view, and then like waiting, uh, and then having like some kind of JavaScript app that picks up all that JSON and then carries on rendering something more like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then like plugging that in Phoenix, like actually plugging in JavaScript into the pipeline. If you didn't want to use Brunch, is really easy as well. So uh, we just did a project here where we uh, end up using Webpack integrated into Phoenix to do um, some kind of front-end heavy stuff. It's all rendered in React because uh, we use React here for all of our client-side stuff. Um, so we're sharing a bunch of components between like our main web application and this sub-application that's, that's a Phoenix Elixir app that renders on the client-side and then React basically picks up and does, the, um, does everything there. But obviously we're making that decision where we're like, you know what, if you don't have JavaScript enabled, there's no progressive enhancement here, it's all or nothing. But Phoenix is still really useful to us there because 
we need to do stuff like CSRF tokens and we need to interact with an API and we need to pull in some libraries that we already have. So mm-hmm. it would have been crazy for us to like do all of this in Node and then like spin up a separate service and then rebuild a bunch of stuff. Um, so we, we opted to do the Phoenix approach and I think it's working out fairly well for us so far. So I have a question for you. Um, if you're using a framework like uh, Vue or React on the front end, do you automatically plug it into WebSockets? Oh, um, that's a hard one because it, it it's kind of a it depends on what you need. Um, okay. And like so, in our heavy client side application that we have at Frame.io, it's like a really fat client app, and like all of that is just straight up JavaScript, all rendered uses React as a view library, and then we use Redux on the, to deal with all of like the state. And then we plug Redux into our um, Phoenix sockets as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, we've just been doing some like really awesome stuff with presence as well. And it was so simple to plug that back into the, the whole like uh, life cycle of uh, seeing things appear, people being online, offline, stuff like that. So it sounds like you do go straight to WebSockets. Uh, I mean, we do for like the, we do for keeping track of things that have changed on the server and like updating it in real time, those kinds of things. Um, but we're not like we we still have a REST API behind it. For the JavaScript or for other clients? Um, uh, so I see like so for our application we have a web client that talks to a REST API, and then inside of that REST API when something gets updated, so say you post a comment, what we do is we then send a real-time event through to our separate um, (coughs) socket service that's like a real-time service that uh, all of the clients connect to and join a particular room. And then we broadcast that event into the socket service and that sends it back down to the clients. But there's still this like, there's still a REST API in the middle. So we're not like purely socket driven for like changes or anything like that. Mm And that's a different conversation, I guess. It's like, should you go purely uh, socket and just not bother using a REST API? So when I bring in uh, front-end JavaScript frameworks, I do it thinking that this is I'm going to use WebSockets. Like, I don't really use React unless I'm also using Redux. And I plug that straight into a WebSocket. And then I'm sort of back to managing state on the server. And I like that because I think... Uh, the, the server's the brain, and so it's easier to think about this stuff happening closer to the center of activity. And uh, I prefer working in Elixir than working in JavaScript, and so if I can express more of the logic in Elixir, I would prefer to do that. And then um, just have the JavaScript do very basic uh, thinking around, oh, is it this component or that component? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Yeah, I think React's really good for that as well, right? Like, you have... If you've got all of your state in Redux and it's being driven by a server, then React is responding to whatever is being passed into it. So um, it kind of really simplifies that that loop of thinking about what should be rendered, and it's all driven by the data. Yeah, and that's a really nice place to be. And um, I recognize that for some people, picking up React and Redux is a big hurdle. And I think for smaller applications, it's it's way overkill. And yeah, 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 totally. Like we have, um, we have like a CRUD app on the back end that has no JavaScript whatsoever, and it's all just like server side rendered Phoenix views as well. Uh-huh. You know, it's so refreshing. Like, 
Yeah, but I, I wouldn't want to write a CRUD app in like React and Redux. That would suck. No, and I think that's the that's the application where I would just stick with, here's some jQuery. I'm going to maybe fire something down a WebSocket or a REST API, get something back, add something to the DOM, call it a day. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if we did need to extend to any JavaScript, I think we'd do that rather than like go full-blown React. But th this is also like a back-end application and like the the customer interaction and the experience on that side doesn't matter so much because it's an internal app you mm -hmm. know but like for us everything else that we do has to be uh we have a very high level of kind of polish and like the experience has to feel very good so we do lots of animation and things like that and like we find that uh react is really good at delivering very high performing app, um kind of animations as well mm-hmm Hmm. I don't think that's a good enough reason to say re use React though, like animations, you know. Is it better but, than Vue? Uh, honestly, I've only very lightly experimented with Vue. Um, so we, we made a large decision as a front-end engineering team here to kind of standardize around React and Redux because that's what all the millennials do, right? Um, so, and then we didn't really do any other analysis of other tools. We have some folks here who like Ember and other people who've done Angular in the past, but um, for us, that combination of React plus Redux felt like where uh, a lot of the community was kind of solidifying. Um, and I think there's like, the, it's seemingly like the pool of developers in that space is pretty large as well. So mm -hmm. that's, that's been good for us. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So like when you've done uh, your React and Redux kind of stuff, are you talking about like, you would separate out your client side and your server side. So the server side would just be an API in that case. Yeah, and I mean, the server side would have all of the logic because then your React front end is taking user input and then firing it off to the back end and letting it change state or do something and then push that back up to uh, back down to your Redux store, which then knows how to update your uh, front end. And I'm mm. simplifying this a little bit. But then again, like all of the, should this change? Is this legal? Um, is this customer in the proper state to proceed forward? So the button should change color. Um, a lot of that is done uh, on the back end. And then the React part is just rendering components. And um, it knows, say, okay, if this customer is in an active state, then I know the button should be green. And it gets that out of uh, Redux. Whoa, that's crazy. Why is that crazy? It feels like you're... So I always think of like the back end as being kind of client agnostic in a lot of ways. Uh -huh. Where it's, in that case, it feels like you're kind of tying the client implementation to the server. Um, perhaps I misspoke. Which part, which part feels like I'm tying them together? Uh, with the, like, the button color. The button color? So that's yeah. owned by the client. Okay, um, right, right. So you're saying like if the customer is active, set the button color to some particular color. Exactly. Yeah, that sort okay, of yeah, yeah. UI thing is is front end. But the okay, is this is this a valid action? Is this legal? Is the customer um, have they done everything such that they are now active? That's yeah. all handled on the back end. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I so yeah, I was having this actually a very similar conversation with uh, another company who use Phoenix very heavily and Elixir very heavily. Um, the the outline .com, which oh, is yeah. like a news website. Um, all of their app is server-side rendered, uh, like Phoenix, everything on there. And they mm -hmm. they use like JavaScript as progressive enhancement, but everything goes through the Phoenix view pipeline because it's so fast. And I remember reading like 
this insanely clickbaity article from Thoughtbot that we'll link to in the uh, show notes, which is like, you might not need React or something. <laughs> Do you remember that one? No, but I love that. I love how they troll JavaScript developers. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was one of those things where they were like, "Look, Phoenix is really, really quick on the back end, um, so and obviously orders of magnitude faster than kind of like a Ruby string concatenation and whatever you were doing before in Rails." And particularly um, if you already have a WebSocket connection open. Yeah, like you could be like rendering views out and then sending that whole view over the wire, arguably. I've definitely you know? done that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, you know what that is? It's PJAX, right? Do you remember TurboLinks? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I I know that got trolled so heavily, but if you look at like if you look at GitHub, GitHub is like an example of an app that still does all of that, right? GitHub is server side rendered uh, Ruby. I, I I think it still is. Like, please correct us if if we're wrong about this, but. Um, it seems like it's still server-side rendered Ruby, and then they throw in like PJAX magic, like over the top to render other views and kind of ship those back down to the clients. And you know what? Like, it's pretty good. Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of places where they do a lot more JavaScript as well because there's a lot of interactivity there they have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of the example of like when you press T on the to bring up like the quick view of all your files so you can search through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely like a lot of extra JavaScript, but like they're still they're still in this like middle ground of a server rendered app that kind of like still does a lot of client side uh, JavaScript and interactivity, but via progressive enhancement rather than saying like we're all in on the JavaScript rendering. I suspect in their case that was more a function of inertia. Like they built That's their app true. and then uh, they're <laughs> it's kind of stuck with it just from all the investment they made. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that like I if you see what's coming out of like Basecamp, they're still they're still in this mindset as well as well. Like um, they release like a new JavaScript framework that's it's kind of like well like we used to do a lot of this stuff. We used to call it like um, like a sprinkle of JavaScript on top of your server render views. You know where it's like you have something that's rendered via the server. And then you're adding a little bit of JavaScript magic on top to like provide some extra in- interactivity. So it's more of that like progressive enhancement um, rather than like a pure like heavy client side app. And I don't know, <laughs> I like fall back and forth on this one. I'm like, there's sometimes where honestly now for me it's like easier to do it in React for the reasons that you were saying as well. It's like if you're using React and Redux and like everything's just interacting with a, an API that's shared across many clients or whatever, like I don't know, maybe doing like a whole client side app is is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd be really interested to hear what other people are doing and if everyone is just starting out with like a separation between the client and the server now in a lot of their projects, or if you're like still in that middle ground of of like adding webpack and react into um phoenix and doing some stuff in uh doing some stuff in like server rendered and then some stuff in client honestly a lot of what i've seen is new projects on new projects people go straight for uh oh we have a search box let's bring in react it's like i know that you need to bring in react for a search box but right And, and and it's one of those it depends on the functionality i guess yeah and it depends on okay well we know we're gonna need this later but then Yagni, um, yeah, true. I mean, like write the search box, and then once you have a few other components, particularly if you're if you're doing discovery in an application or you're doing very uh, just very agile, like trying to figure out and 
figure out your product and iterate quickly. Like, do mm-hmm. the dumb thing. Unless you're building, you know, you've really spec this out. You've done your user research. You've done your product research, and uh, you know that you're, that's the direction you're going to go. Yeah, and and maybe there's, I mean, like React is one approach, right? Like it, it does feel like Vue might be a nice fit for some of those like lighter bits of JavaScript there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not saying that you can't build whole applications in it, so please don't like. I don't want to start like a flame war about React or Vue. You got to be so precise but, these days when you're talking about things. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true, and and I I've been doing React for like four years at this point. Like we were kind of early adopters, at, uh, made by many where I was before, and I, I've loved it since it came out. But I understand why some people are like, oh, it's it's like it's a huge JavaScript bundle, and you're shipping like lots of ton tons and tons of JavaScript to your customers and stuff like that. But, are you saying that they react poorly to it? Oh damn! <laughs> oh. <laughs> JavaScript jokes. There we go. That's a new low for us, isn't it? Hold on. I've got I've got a redemption quote. Um, so I was talking to some people the other day. Uh, this guy was giving a presentation about the history of uh, online gaming. Uh, not online gaming. Mobile gaming. And going through back in the day when there were no games on your phone. And then Nokia pre-installed Snake on everyone's phone. And then there was this... Uh, then they released the App Store... And there were a few early games, and uh, actually he said one of the games that's stuck around was uh, Solitaire. This company um, in Orange County released uh, an early version of Solitaire on a subscription model. Uh, So they've just been racking up tons of money ever since then because people don't cancel their subscriptions. And so this one guy raises his hand and says, so you're telling me that they played their cards right? Oh, oh. (laughs) Excellent. I almost Excellent. went home after that. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Did the crowd go wild? Did yeah. Everyone just stand the, up and the whoop. crowd went nuts. The confetti flew. Yeah, oh my god, it was great. <laughs> so good. Okay, so I guess I, I don't think there's like a concrete like this is JavaScript, this is a solution. But I, I I don't know. I still there's still space for a middle ground for me. Like render it on, do some on the server, do some on the client. Like throw in some JavaScript when you need it. Don't you don't have to go crazy and only do uh, like full React apps that require separate deployment. It's it's kind of a it depends and your mileage may vary on what you're what you're doing. And right? I would say I would add that um, if you are using a framework like React or Vue, um, take a hard look at WebSockets because I think um, being able to keep this connection open and ask smaller questions um, makes these frameworks a lot more powerful. And uh, being able to store a basic state in, um, in the WebSocket session itself uh, gives you a lot more flexibility um, with your applications. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I understand where you're coming from with that, but I'm still like, why would you, like, I don't know, I think I'm a REST purist. <laughs> so I can't like, I can't get over this idea of like not using a full API to do writes and like sending actions over WebSockets, but it's it's effectively the same thing, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, but then you start to move away from the mental model of request response. I mean, you ask for yeah. um, you ask for things and you get stuff back, so there is transmission. But um, it's again, the REST is just very page oriented, very document oriented. 
Mm-hmm. And um, WebSockets give you, I think, other flexibility because when you start thinking about all these clients are connected, not only can I say, upload this new article, but then it can easily say, oh, well, everyone who's already connected, you suddenly get the new article. Right. You, know, the, you don't have to keep polling for something new. Clients don't have to refresh the page. Uh, and that makes applications very interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I'm like, I think everything should feel real time if you're doing it now, right? Like, I think that was one of the things that Phoenix realized where they're like, you know what? Like, like we still, like, there's still so many apps that haven't integrated a lot of that real time web kind of functionality. And Phoenix really, like, saw that there was a space there to bring that into a framework and, like, ship it on day one. And I think that was a really good idea. That's how I got into Elixir, is I needed something with WebSockets. Right. Right, and you didn't want to run like a socket IO server or like a, a Fay uh, in Ruby or or in Node. Is Fay in Node? Uh, Fay's, Fay's Ruby, I think. Uh, oh, it's on Event Machine, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Rails did Action Channel cable thing. <laughs> so I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> we'll leave that one there. Yeah. So uh, what else are we going to talk about today then, Desmond? You got another question? Um, great question, Chris. Um, I'm, looking at, <laughs> I'm looking at the GitHub issues, and uh, Elijah Kim has submitted a question. And he asks, how does the VM, the Erlang VM, handle processes that hog memory or CPU? Let's dig into this a little more. There's a process running that consistently does heavy operations. How does the VM allocate resources to it? For example, let's consider an application that has two processes, one that consistently pulls itself at a ridiculous rate, let's call it heavy, and does some heavy computation, and does some heavy computation. Another process, let's call it light, does not do much at all. How would the VM allocate uh, its resources? I assume it means the uh, resources to each process. Um, So I immediately am thinking about uh, Sasha Vurek's amazing talk. Uh, like on solid ground. Yeah. Right? Do you remember the that one, one from, from MPEX? MPEX last year? Yeah, that's right. Uh, he showed this awesome demo where he was basically like maxing out the CPU on one process and showing that he could still accept incoming connections on another one. And when we say because when we say maxing out, he uh, deliberately set up an infinite loop in his code that pegged the CPU at 100% uh, for this web yeah. server. And then he opened a new tab uh, on the web server and made normal requests and they happened just instantly. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it was like some. Um, I think it was like a Fibonacci calculation or something, right? That he was doing on the other tab. Yeah, he just set it up so that uh, if the user input a negative number, then it would count forever. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and it was. Uh, if you haven't seen that talk, it's fantastic. Great like, talk. Just as an overview of why Erlang and and the Beam is like such a powerful platform to build on top of. That's like. Yeah, if you need to sell with Elixir internally, I think like send them that talk and be like, watch this. But um, I think that goes some way to answering Eli's question here, right? Yeah, like, so let's dig into this a little more. Um, the Erlang VM has uh, what's called fair scheduling. So each process is allocated time on your computer's CPU via what's called a scheduler. And the scheduler's job is to pick the next runnable process, put it on the scheduler, uh, and then take it off when its time has elapsed. Now its time is not wall clock time, it's measured in uh, what are called reductions, which is more or less a function call. So your process gets about 2000 function calls and then whatever it's doing, 
if it's adding numbers, if it's uh, doing I.O., uploading something to S3, it gets yanked from the CPU, its state is stored, uh, and then it's put to the back of the line. So the next runnable process gets its turn on the CPU. So what happens if you have a few processes that are, to use Eli's words, hogging your CPU, they don't block anything else. They get their 2,000 reductions, and then someone else gets their turn. So using Sasha's example, um, your site will still stay responsive. New users can keep interacting with it. It's transparent to them that uh, some user has gone and done something that's screwed something up or developer has left a, a piece of code in that, that causes an issue. Um, and it's really comforting to know that one or two, um, one or two, just a couple of botches will not bring down your entire site. Uh, now what you will see happen if everyone, if the system is under great load, then everything kind of slows down because now you have all of your processes taking up their 2000 reductions instead of maybe finishing early. But then your system slows down very evenly. Uh, you don't have crazy spikes. You don't have uh, other unintended weird actions that can have ripple effects through your infrastructure. And uh, so I, I have a bit of a story about great. this. It, a, a real world example of this happening, right? So uh, I tried to fix a bug in our API where uh, we were changing the way we were passing tokens into the API when there was a couple of function heads and one of them would call recursively, right? It would say, strip out some params and then pass those back into a different function head. So I, like an idiot, because <laughs> like that's that's me, deployed this change about six o'clock on a Thursday and then walked out the door, <laughs> went to the cinema, sat in the cinema, my phone starts like buzzing like crazy. So I was getting all these pager duty alarms. And uh, what had happened was I deployed like a recursive loop. And basically th this, this like controller action was hit like pretty infrequently. But when it was hit, what happened was that uh, we just started sending like loads and loads of requests. So it just would sit in this loop to the extent that we were going, we normally have about 200,000 requests in an hour and it, it peaked about 5 mm. million just over this life, uh, like lifetime of this like infinite loop that was going on here um, because it would take that request and it would make another request to another API and it was just sitting in that over and over and over. But during this time, nothing went down. We were getting a slight increase in 500 alarms to your point about you know the the state of the uh, the system does slightly slow down, and like to be fair, this um, the endpoint that it was constantly hitting was basically behind the cache anyway, so it was like not doing that much extra mm -hmm. load. Um, but just it was just a really funny example of like having this CPU just like go crazy, and you could see it, and like everything was like pegging really really high, and then we were still able to serve like the normal amount of requests, and in fact we. 10x our traffic basically wow. by doing that i mean yeah. it's good to know that if you did have a legitimate spike in traffic that the system would be able to yeah i mean it's it's kind of like a it's not a completely realistic example because uh it was all behind the mm -hmm. cache like that we were returning like a user's information <laughs> and that hits memcache there's a because it's like a hot path but it was still one of those funny examples so the lessons learned from this are a have some tests 
and we didn't have any tests around this one particular code path. There was like some tests around this function, but like there was this one very particular path that what didn't have anything. And B is don't deploy at six o'clock and then go to the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> that was just like a that was a really bad mistake. And I was watching Annihilation, which if you haven't seen it, is so good. And like yeah, my phone was just like in my pocket the whole time. So. Thank you to my team who uh, dug us out of that hole. And I think some of that actually prompted this question from Eli, who happens to be on my team as well. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, yes. the second part of the question is, in the same vein, what if process heavy exists in an application with millions of light processes? Will the millions of light processes slow down due to heavy? Um, and the short answer is no. I mean... Everything will slow down if everything is doing a lot and the whole system is under load. So don't think of it in terms of this one process uh, is hogging stuff. Think about it in terms of is the whole system loaded down, whether that's one very busy process or millions of moderately busy processes. Uh, what is, what's the system doing? If your whole CPU is kind of stacked, then maybe you should um, think about getting a bigger box or finding other ways to reduce the workload. Um, but the short answer is don't worry about it. There is a way, there mm -hmm. is a way to give, um, oh, and actually a quick corollary, uh, which I mentioned in my blog post about uh, mistakes Rails developers make. Uh, one of the, the things you have to do when you have a background job queue system is you have to think about, well, what are the priority queues? What things have to happen right now? And what things can wait a minute? So maybe sending a welcome email is lower priority. So that takes a little longer to happen. You don't want to throw as many um, resources at that job worker to save money, but you do want to throw resources at the uh, user signing up background queue or the upload a post background queue, something that's important. Um, you don't have to think about priorities in your Erlang system. Everything happens evenly and fairly. And so um, your email will get sent quickly and the uh, high priority stuff will also happen quickly. Um, there is a way to give processes higher priority on a scheduler, which I believe moves them to the front of the run queue. This is extremely rare. I've never seen this happen. Um, I know that it's possible, but no one does it. So don't, don't think that you need to do it. How do you do that? Um, I don't even know if you can, I've never, I've never seen someone do this in Elixir. Um, I believe there's options when you spawn a process to, um, uh, set certain flags in it that the scheduler will respect. Um, but yeah, like no one talks about it in the Elixir world. So you're basically like artificially adjusting the weight of that process. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I can see, I, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know a use case off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are some like in some very high performance systems. Or yeah, whatever. and again, I'm, I'm reluctant to bring this up lest people think, oh, now I can give this process high priority right. it's going to be great don't do that just don't do it yeah i guess generally like just rely on the scheduler to to schedule things yeah i mean the point of having these fair schedulings is that you don't have to think about this stuff and your process will mm -hmm. get its time quickly um where can we go to read a bit more about this because i this has definitely piqued my interest uh bit. well there's the uh erlang documentation um there's mm -hmm. uh, learn you some erlang for great good and then my favorite resource which is the beam book uh, which is a GitHub repo that digs into um, Erlang internals, uh, process internals, how the scheduler works, and just uh, under the hood of uh, the VM. 
Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Be ready. Uh, it, it's such an interesting topic because you know we're we're kind of like building systems on top of this amazingly powerful scheduler under the hood that just does so much for us, right? But we also no- need to know like how we can get the best performance out of it. As and well. I think it's a, sorry. Uh, no, I was going to say. I, I I mean, I've heard a thing about like try and do shorter running tasks per process because the scheduler is better at optimizing for that, which kind of makes sense given the reductions model that you talked about. Um, but yeah. I don't yeah, know. and I mean, you can tune how many reductions are allowed uh, when you beat up when you boot up the, the VM. Uh, I think a lot of our applications, again, don't need to deal with this stuff. Just the, the VM out of the box is going to be great. When you do get to serious load... Uh, like I remember when the grinder folks gave a talk about using presence for tracking hundreds of thousands of concurrent users, uh, they had to dig into uh, some beam optimization and, and passing flags to tweak the VM. Um, and I think it is important for developers to understand the level of abstraction below what they're using, so you don't do yeah. something totally boneheaded. Uh, and it's just interesting, you know, it's a cool piece of engineering. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I guess we should wrap up. Sounds good to me. Cool. Well, uh, we'll put all the show notes online and uh, hopefully you can go ahead and read about some of these things yourself um, and become a bit of a process wizard or a scheduler wizard. Yeah, um, I think the ecosystem needs more people in it who are digging digging under the covers and looking a little deeper at this sort of thing. Definitely. Um, cool. So, and if you haven't already told your friends about Elixir Talk, go ahead and send them over a link. We obviously love to hear from more people. We'd love to have more questions. Um, and we just really want to grow this community. Uh, Desmond and I deeply care about Elixir, the community around it, and just making this place the best it can be. So um, we'd love to hear your feedback about this episode or any other episode we've written. Uh, sorry, written? We, we talk. Um, <laughs> so you can tweet us at ElixirTalk or uh, just open up an issue on our GitHub, which is github.com slash ElixirTalk slash ElixirTalk. We also have a new webpage, which is oh. ElixirTalk.com. So be sure to check that out. Is that written in uh, Phoenix? It is, yeah. Oh, wow. Is there any JavaScript? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> well, that sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, it's very clean. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening, as always, and uh, we hope to see you next time. Keep elixir in.